Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, that's me, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Say goodbye to performance robbing engine deposits with Shell V-Power Nitro Plus Premium Gasoline. Hate to break it to you, but lower grade fuel can leave deposits in your engine that build up over time and leave your engine's performance severely lacking. Thankfully, Shell V-Power Nitro Plus removes up to 100% of performance-robbing deposits with continuous use in gasoline direct injection engine fuel injectors. Download the Shell app today to find your nearest Shell station and rejuvenate your engine with Shell V-Power Nitro Plus Premium Gasoline. Fuel up at Shell. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here, and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London. You just never know. This week we come to you from the Fairmont Pacific Rim in Vancouver, here for the annual Virtuosa Symposium. I've been coming to Vancouver for almost 40 years, dating back to my days as a correspondent to Newsweek. I always loved this city. Of course, how could you not love a city that's on the water and surrounded by water? Um, and great food, uh, great ethnic food, um, and a great hub for going just about anywhere north, east, and maybe even west, uh, if you don't mind crossing an ocean. And uh, my next guest is also a transplant to Vancouver, uh, and he's a civic historian and author, but what the cool thing is about John Atkin is that he literally conducts great walking tours of this city. And John, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I mean... I still look at Vancouver, even though you've seen it and I've seen it, explosive growth. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the Winter Olympics seven years ago didn't hurt, I mean, in terms of that growth. Yep. In fact, they prepared for it. But I remember sailing in here in 1984 when they opened up Pacific Place here, yep. right? And the first cruise ship was the Nordam. I was oh on goodness. it. Yep. Um, and, and uh, you know, it was like this gleaming white city, gleaming and still gleaming white over there. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet... As big as it's gotten, I still look at Vancouver as a manageable city. It's incredibly manageable, and I think one of the things that sets Vancouver apart from most major North American cities is that a couple of things. We've got an amazing transit system where transit ridership rises 5% every year on average. 
and there isn't a freeway or interstate that crosses the city at all. So it is very much a local street network. It's a very walkable city. 20% of the commute in the morning is by foot. 18% is by bicycle. Name another city like that. And we are the only North American city where 51% of the morning commute within the city boundaries is done by means other than a private automobile. So it becomes much more of a different city than most other places. I'll tell you what's different about it, and and you'll get a kick out of this, I think. Uh, I was up here about, oh God, this goes back at least 10 years, and I was walking downtown, and I got lost. And uh, a a police car came by, and I flagged him down. I Mm -hmm. said, listen, could you tell me how I could get here? He said, hop in. He took me. That that doesn't happen. (laughs) No, we're actually, uh, despite the sort of Canadian sort of reputation for being slightly off-putting or a little bit cold, um, we're actually quite a friendly place here. And, uh, you know, you often see people with maps out kind of looking puzzled, and almost anyone will walk up and say, hey, where are you going, what do you need, and how can I get you there? Now, for me, I remember, I mean, I had my favorite restaurants here 40 years ago. One of them's gone already, but Mm -hmm. it was great. Um, And you had the neighborhoods, you know, and then, of course... In the early 90s, you had such an exit of Chinese from, from Hong Kong prior to the handover to the, to the mainland Chinese that you had a huge infusion of, of Chinese in, in mm-hmm. Vancouver, yeah. which was a, a great brain drain for China, but a great brain addition to Vancouver. Oh, an incredible addition because we've historically always had a very large uh, Chinese population here. We've had the second largest historic Chinatown in North America since 1911. Uh, and we've always had that Chinese presence. But what's interesting is you have that Cantonese, uh, mainland Chinese, in the original immigration, you've got that Hong Kong from the 80s, 90s, and now you just have mainland Chinese immigration as well. And that means you can find everything from really good San Francisco-style Chinese right up to some of the most amazing Mandarin cooking. And now you can go back to Hong Kong and find restaurants that serve Vancouver-style Chinese because the food (laughs) has actually morphed into a different style. And so the food scene here is is amazing. Well, I always like to ask the locals, and since you are one, John, Mm -hmm. if if people are listening to the show, and they better be listening to the show... uh, if they're coming to Vancouver, where would you take them to either breakfast, lunch, or dinner that's not in the guidebook, not in the brochure, but very cool? Well, since most of my walking tours are in offbeat parts of the neighborhood, Keep going. I had a group of folks for breakfast, I would take them over to the downtown east side, which would make a lot of people in this city shudder, and I would take them up to the Ovaltine Cafe. Okay, and why would they shudder? Downtown East First of all, the name itself is a little bit dated, Ovaltine. I love it. Oh, yeah. Well, the Ovaltine sits right in the middle of what is the shorthand for everything that's wrong with Vancouver. If, if journalists come to the city, and during the Olympics, for instance, you came to the city, wow, this is an amazing place. There's something wrong with it. Where is it? And it's Main and Hastings Street. That's our low-income area, and it's got you know a bit of a drug problem things. But it's also a very cool, interesting, stable neighborhood. So the Ovaltine is a 1942 good old-fashioned long-counter booth coffee shop that still serves really atrociously bad diner coffee, which is part of the whole thing. Uh, new owners the uh, last couple of years, they've upgraded the cheeseburgers without changing the cheeseburgers. They're just good now. I won't even go there. Keep going. And the uh, morning hash is just amazing. So I go there for breakfast. I sit there at the okay, counter. Okay, so we started the Ovaltine for breakfast. Yep. Now take me to lunch. Lunch, well, we're going to go over to Chinatown, and we've got now a whole new breed of interesting Asian-themed restaurants there. And a new one, uh, which is a Thai-influenced noodle house called Fat Mao. And these guys serve slightly spicy, but just really amazingly well-prepared noodle dishes in a tiny little spot. And it's just brilliant. So I would take you there for lunch. All right. Now the big finale, dinner. Oh, boy. Um, There's so much that's absolutely amazing out there. But what I would probably do 
is take you out to the city of Richmond and go to the Richmond Center Mall. You walk to, to the mall. To the mall. I'm getting a little scared here. Go ahead. You walk to the end of the mall in the south end, and then you walk out towards uh, the arm that goes out to number three road. And there's a tiny little Chinese seafood slash dim sum place there that serves some of the most astounding seafood, some of the most astounding dim sum, and I would take you there. Is there always a, there always a line out in front of it? It's interesting. It, it has a bit of a lineup at certain points, yeah. but it generally doesn't. And we've always managed to just walk in. But and the what's food, the name of it? I just I you just, just gave me the direct. You just know how to get there. <laughs> I just know how to get so there. you go to the mall in Richmond. Go to the mall in Richmond, the Richmond Center Mall. Head to the arm at the end of the mall for Number Three Road. And what do you order there? You have a particular dish. They have a salted and spicy squid dish that is just exquisite because it is hot to the point of almost being too hot, and yet the saltiness kills the heat. The squid and the things is just the most exquisitely well-cooked uh, And, dish. of course, the beer kills everything. <laughs> you, yeah, exactly. You forgot the beer, John. <laughs> Sorry. Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. scared about my next guest because he was voted Canada's best bartender and he's right here at the hotel uh, and uh, also fourth best bartender in the world that's correct this is very scary um, <laughs> exciting it's exciting and and you know in the old days and the old days probably was like five years ago you would never expect a hotel with a couple of exceptions in major gateway cities to have a truly uh, cutting-edge bar it was basically, you know, their restaurant menu items were like meat and potatoes, and the bar was basically, you know, martinis and, and Manhattans and whatever. That's not the case here. No, not at all. Um, and I mean, even now there's been a big resurgence in hotel bars and the classic styles of cocktails they're doing, and even pushing the envelope and being some of the leading bars in the world. Now, the accent that I'm hearing? Australian. Known for your drinking, of course. <laughs> With two hands, please. It's, our hobby is also my job. <laughs> All right, so now I, what, is there such a thing as a signature cocktail here? We don't have a signature signature for the hotel, no, but um, there is a signature uh, cocktail for the city, um, which is what I'm probably going to make for you shortly. But uh, we Vancouver have, has its own cocktail. Correct. Uh, the original cocktail, the Vancouver cocktail, was created in uh, English Bay at the Sylvia Hotel. And by the way, there's such a thing as a Singapore Sling. There's the Sazerac in New Orleans. Yep. Right, and here it's called what? The Vancouver cocktail. Did they have a committee meet on that? <laughs> well, you've got the Manhattan. That's from Manhattan. You've also got Toronto from Toronto. So there's okay, a few. fine. Yeah, yeah. All right, so run me through this. What is in the famous Vancouver cocktail? So uh, it was created in 1954, and it's uh, got uh, gin, uh, sweet vermouth, benedictine, and orange bitters. We've done a slight, so we've managed a slight variation of a martini. So the martinez come from San Francisco, but then it took 80 years for our variation to come up to Vancouver and us kind of twist it slightly and take out one ingredient and add another. Okay, what, which one did you take out? Took out maraschino and added benedictine. Okay, got it. Yeah. And, uh, and, and gin, any particular kind of gin? Well, so that's why we have the Vancouver number two that we're doing today is we've essentially taken this classic drink and made it as local in Vancouver as we could. So we're using a local gin made downtown right here in Vancouver. Right. Um, 
we're using a Odd Society uh, bitters just down the road, and we're using a local uh, bitters as well, orange bitters. So it's all local? All local. All right, so let's, let's talk about that. What do you do? Well, I've already made it already here. The, the interesting thing about this drink that we sort of played to when we made... Uh, oh, I'll try to keep this quiet. And this is, ladies and gentlemen, this is radio. I want you to know this, okay? Now, what did you just do there? You, you have a glass... Oh, you, you took so, out the water that melted from the ice, right? you got a mixing glass full of ice. I'm just straining off the water so there's no right. excess water. You want to control the dilution. <clears throat> I've actually got a pre-batch uh, of the drink here in a bottle. This is to signify that when we're actually building the last bar of botanist, just that we just opened last week, as an ode to the city, we actually took a bottle time capsule, and before they put um, the stone on top of the bar, sorry, the the marble, we actually buried one into the bar top with a note to the future bartenders with our opening cocktail menu. So <laughs> Just then, in case there's a civil disturbance <laughs> and they have to break up the bar, yeah. Well, in 30 or 40 years, when they yeah. actually go to re-renovate the bar or whatever, they'll o reopen it up, and there'll be a note from the opening bar team saying, first drinks on us. Okay. Yeah. And now you're pouring... So it's all pre-mixed, so I'm just going to put that one into there. We're stirring yes, this. Can you hear the ice being stirred, ladies and gentlemen? Thank you so much, yes. Okay. It's just stirring versus shaking because it's all uh, straight liquor components. There's no sugars or acidities that we want to uh, really ruffle together, so we just want to treat it nice and now, gently. Now, while you're stirring that, yes. what's the most popular drink at this hotel? It's not going to be the Vancouver. No, it's an old-fashioned, actually. Really? Yeah, we sell probably four or five times more old-fashions than any other cocktail. And what's in an old-fashioned? Help me out. Uh, a whiskey, either rye or bourbon, uh, bitters and sugar. And that's it? That's it. Um, it's a classic-style drink, essentially just a few elements with obviously a little bit of dilution. I seem to not have a vessel. That's okay. We can make this work here. And there it is. a very fancy martini glass. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> it's radio. No one's going to know. Okay. Spritz with a little bit of lemon oils. That's it? Yep, that's it. My God, okay, he's moving it over towards me. Ooh, that's nice. Hmm. It's like a bit of more herbal martini, if you will. Yeah, hmm. and before you know it, you're, you're, you're basically slammed. You'd probably have one before dinner. I wouldn't recommend having three or four consecutively. <laughs> <laughs> no, neither would I. No. All right, so... Manhattan, uh, not Manhattan, Old Fashioned is, is the one. Old Fashioned is the one, followed very closely by uh, Martini's many variations. And Cosmopolitan's are dead now? No, they're not dead. They're still there. People like that comfort order if they're not used to ordering cocktails. Right. And your favorite drink? A Negroni. Negroni is a classic cocktail, three ingredients, um, similar to the drink we just made you, but a little bit more bitter. All right. Yeah? I love this. It's radio. No one can know how much I'm drinking right now. <laughs> this is perfect. <laughs> If you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. I give myself a one museum rule. I will only go to one museum because if I do more, my eyes will glaze over. I really want to have that immersive experience and see it. I had an amazing experience in Montreal at their, at their Museum of Art. Uh, and there's a museum here in Vancouver that people don't take enough notice of because people don't realize the history that's in this part of the world. It's the Museum of Anthropology. And here from the Museum of Anthropology, Dr. April Liu, how are you? I'm doing great. So you heard my introduction. I mean, we're talking thousands of years. 
That's right. And I'd, first, I'd like to welcome you all to Vancouver, and thank you for having me on your show. Oh, this is a pleasure, yeah. And welcome uh, to the um, unceded territories of the Musqueam, Salish, and Tsleil-Waututh um, First Nations peoples. And you see, that's what people don't get. <laughs> they don't realize how deep the history goes. That's right. And uh, Vancouver City Council actually voted to recognize that we are on unceded territory. And maybe for your American audiences, they don't use this term so often, but unceded meaning not surrendered, never given over by war or treaty to the settlers, the colonial settlers that came. Exactly. So you still retain, at least in spirit, if not in law, that right. That's right. We acknowledge every day at the museum that we're on the, you know, the ancestral territories of the Musqueam people. We remind the visitors, and it's kind of basically become a part of culture ba here. Basically, yeah. what you're saying is you're renting. <laughs> <laughs> we consider ourselves very privileged visitors exactly. and, and guests. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that history because that history is displayed at the museum. That's people right. get a chance to see that it doesn't go back five, five years, ten years, a hundred years, three hundred years. It goes back thousands. At least fifteen thousand. You know, there's, uh, you know, we're celebrating Canada 150, but Vancouver, the city of Vancouver has added a plus to that, um, you know, 150 plus to acknowledge, as we should, that there, there is, there's been cultures here for thousands of years, not just with 150 years of colonialism. <laughs> so what are you actually showing in, in a way that people can relate? Because one of my biggest challenges at museums is either they're trying to be so hip that people appreciate it for the hipness, but not about the history, or they're just like presenting it in a way that people can't relate to it. That's right. The most incredible thing about our museum is the integration of the museum itself and the landscape. So the first thing that your attention is brought to, even when you're inside, you're looking through the glass, you see the ocean, you see the cliffs, the cedar trees around you. And within this environment, you're looking at the historic cultural belongings of the indigenous peoples of Canada. This is in the Great Hall of the Museum of Anthropology. So you've got the old totems. We even have the Haida House that's outside on the bluffs overlooking the ocean. And so just by being on the land and being in that natural environment, I think you're reminded of the history of the land. What's amazing to me, and you mentioned the totems, if you, if you look at the South Pacific nations and the islanders, uh, they did their storytelling on tree bark and they told storyboards. It was, it, they were storyboards that just went on, sometimes they went eight or nine feet, yes, right? Yes, yes. You've just done it as vertical. That's the totems, <laughs> that's the storyboard that you're telling. That's right, and, that's and right. It just, and it just needs to be interpreted. That's right, and we have um, daily tours at the museum, we have special tours, and we have also many rotating exhibits that happen. So if people are coming this year, they'll see actually an exhibit on contemporary Asian art, calligraphy, and script. Um, they'll also see a show on Amazonia, so the right, which is called Amazonia, the Rights of Nature. So we're actually quite global in nature, the museum. We're a place of world arts and culture. And but let's go back. I'm going back to the totems. Go ahead. Yeah. I mean, what's the most surprising totem that you have there that tells the most intricate story? There's one that I really love. It doesn't stand out necessarily visually when you first walk in, but the story behind it is so interesting. It's from the Gitanyao community of northern BC. Explain that. And what's incredible about this totem is that when... No, no. Tell me about the community. The community, it's in northern BC. It's a uh, First Nations community up uh, in Gitanyao. And... 
the totem was initially, uh, you know, the university approached to purchase this. At first they refused, and then they came back with an offer that we will sell this to you if you agree to record our histories and our knowledge and teach it in your universities How and cool. give us money to recarve new poles. And so... And, and that was a deal you said, right, done. Yes, and that was in the 50s, and it was historic because it was the first time, uh, you know, indigenous histories were taught in universities here in Canada. And now you can go see that totem and learn the story. Exactly. Riding along in my automobile My baby beside me at the wheel Cruising and playing the radio With no particular place to go I've been saying this all along about the food scene here in Vancouver. I've been coming up for over 40 years. Uh, it's never disappointed me. I always have a great time. Of course, I'm one of those guys who always goes back to the same places because I like them already, but you, you don't have to do that because there are new restaurants opening up all the time, including one that just opened up in this hotel called The Botanist. But uh, the person who knows all about this because he lives it, and I, what I find particularly fascinating is he was a, a litigator for, for 10 years, and then one day woke up and said, no more law, food, feed me. His name is Neil McLennan. He's the food editor of Vancouver Magazine. How are you, man? I'm great, Pete. How you doing? No more law, just food. No more law, just food, yeah. It's uh, it's a pretty good trade most days. I'll, I'll, I'll uh, cough to that for sure. Although, of course, what you're really doing is you're, you're litigating the food now. I guess that's right. There's judgment being passed uh, by me and I suppose uh, a other jury, A jury of one, I think. Yeah, exactly. It's much easier for sure. Now, I mean, there's so much great food here and, and there's, so much, there's such a diversity of food here. Uh, of course, I always come up with the Chinese or even the Japanese. I, I, I used to live at Tojo's. I, yeah. mean, I mean, that's you mentioned Tojo's to most people in Vancouver. They go, yeah, yeah, because it's been here so long. Yeah, we take it for granted, the idea that we have world class. It's a phrase we use all the time, world class. But Tojo's is just, oh, yeah, Tojo's, it's great. And sometimes we lose perspective on, on how good it is. Here. Yeah, for sure. When I first came up here, and here's how I date myself, uh-huh. Umberto's. Yeah, sure. Right? And yeah. he had more than one, by the way. Sure. Right? He's back again, by the way. He has a new restaurant, the, the latest incarnation, so he is back uh, in the game. Okay. And, uh, Umberto's was, of course, uh, Italian. Then there was a restaurant that I fell in love with in, near Chinatown, not far from the Hotel Vancouver, it then closed, yeah. called The Only Cafe. Sure. Remember that? Yeah. It was a counter with nine seats. They threw fish in the window. That was it. Yeah. Done. Yeah. Right? What's changed for you, though, in the last couple of years? Because what really put you guys on the map, because Vancouver stepped up their game for the Winter Olympics, that was seven years ago. I think so. So now what's happening? I mean, really, it's, it's, uh, I think it's a confluence of a few things. You hit two right off the bat. Chinese, it's always been a huge part of our culture. Uh, the first times you would have been coming here, it would have been largely the immigration from Hong Kong when the handover came. Yeah, a lot of people ran out of there for that. Yeah. Absolutely. So that gave us a huge influx of Cantonese restaurants. And I still feel like outside of, of, of Hong Kong, we really are one of the great world capitals for that. But in the last couple of years, we've had a huge influx of mainland Chinese. So from Shanghai, uh, from Beijing, and from other points. And that's given us a whole new uh, element. So it's no longer a one-note take, even a good one-note take on Chinese cuisine. It really is a cuisine of the entire mainland China and the Cantonese and Hong Kong. And then Japanese has continued to become, I mean, it used to be, people used to think of Japanese food as synonymous with sushi. And Tojo started out as being one of the great uh, sushi masters in the world, the inventor of the California roll, allegedly. But now we have izakaya, we have different types well, of you sushi. Have, you have miku, right? We have miku, it's not that far from here. One of the few places. You can walk to it right from here. You can yeah. walk to it right yeah. from here. One of the few places that has a view. That's a, you, you probably noticed that for a city that's so beautiful and is on the ocean, we don't have that many restaurants that, uh, that, have, that a have a view. Miku has 
those of you, they do a buri sushi, which, uh, again, when they brought it here, probably five or six what years ago, be my guess. What is that? It's a really lightly seared sushi. So it's still, by all intents and purposes, raw, but they take a, a, a blowtorch and just sear it a little bit, sometimes with a slight topping on top so it caramelizes a little bit. Really interesting. It's a fantastic sort of Oh, i got to check that out. And now, they started five or six years ago. I would think there's probably two dozen places now that have now tried to do their own take on a buri sushi. Uh, so that's one. And one of the cuisines that we have not talked about but is huge is, is South Asian or Indian cuisine. Yeah. Uh, after the uh, Chinese community, that's our largest immigrant community, huge uh, parts of... Uh, of, of the city and, and the whole region uh, has... Okay, uh, so i got to ask you, where do you go for your best non-bread? Well, I mean, really, I, it's, it's terrible to say because it's the obvious one, but Vidge's is, out of all the restaurants, if you woke me up in the middle of the night and say, what is your most iconic restaurant in Vancouver? I would still have to say Vidge's. It's our fundamental Indian restaurant, but it was the first one to take ingredients, uh, French classical preparation with in Indian ingredients to the highest level. And I still think, I'm still happy to say to anyone with a straight face, you find me a better uh, Indian restaurant in North America and I'm buying because I still think it's one of our classic places. Famous for its, its line, no reservations. Now, everybody doesn't take reservations now, especially in Vancouver, but all throughout North America you go to places and it's cool and hip to have uh, no reservations. Vidges was the original, absolutely no reservations. Uh, to show up. Uh, to show I mean... And wait. And wait, like everybody, Harrison Ford, our, our current prime minister, when he was uh, an MP, had to stand in line and wait like everyone else. It's one of the great democracies of our food scene, is standing in line and waiting with dishes. Hello? Uh, this is your captain speaking. There is absolutely no cause for a laugh. Head out on the highway, looking for adventure. Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. If you're just joining us, you know that I've been coming to Vancouver for about, well, I'm not going to tell you how long. It's too embarrassing. But, but long enough to tell you how much I still love this place. It's grown unbelievably, but at the same time, it's still a manageable city. It's still a very green city. And when it comes to food, uh, there are a few cities that can match it. And, and my next guest knows all about that. She's a Top Chef Canada judge, TV personality. But most importantly, she's a local and, uh, and started a great website, followmefoodie.com, and an extreme foodie. Her name is Mijun Pak. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Mijun, what's an extreme foodie? What's an extreme? I live and breathe this. I mean, I love, like a lot of people say, oh, okay, food is my passion and whatnot, but this is literally what I do every single day. Try new restaurants, explore ingredients. Um, we will go to the ends of the earth to find a restaurant that we had read about, or we'll wait forever to get on a reservation list and do everything we can do to try a certain dish or restaurant that we read about or we heard about through somebody else who is just as crazy as we are. Now, is it true that they're opening more restaurants here every day? I mean, it's just getting crazy. They are. They're also closing a lot of restaurants, unfortunately, because the rent is so high. But there are a lot of restaurants opening up for sure. Now, when I first came here, uh, and, and I'm, I'm going to date myself, but when I first came here, there was, you know, there was Umberto's, of course, mm -hmm. and right the time, and there was this crazy place that I love called the Only Cafe, but it, it closed. It was this 
crazy little fish place near Chinatown. But then there was Tojo's, right? That Tojo, for those of you who don't remember this, I mean, he's not just a sushi chef. He, he, he's reportedly the guy who invented the California roll. So that's what I hear. Mm-hmm. But I, mean, I still go there all the time. But there's great Chinese. There's great Japanese. There's great Indian. I mean, you, you never run out, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's really interesting. I mean, Tojo-san, uh, also a friend, he... I would have to say when he came to Vancouver, he really pioneered fine dining Japanese when it didn't really exist. Um, when people were kind of unfamiliar with Japanese cuisine, we had lots of immigration then and people were unfamiliar with sushi and how to eat sushi. And so I know a lot of people debate like who really invented the California roll. Tojo-san says, you know, he did in LA there. Someone says that he did. And it was a way, basically it was a way to get people who um, were unfamiliar with sushi to try sushi. Oh, and by the way, yeah. You go to a sushi restaurant now and you order California, they go, why? Exactly. Right? I mean, it's like, oh, that's like so old. Mm-hmm. Right? Well, I, I don't know if it's old as much as it's just become like a, like it's, it's like the. It's like, a Ritz, it's like a Ritz cracker of sushi. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, it was, you know. I just came up with that, by the mm-hmm. way. I thought it was pretty good. Yeah. I, yeah, I was trying to think of the same thing. I'm yeah. like, it's like a burger. I don't even know how to, but no, it's like a Ritz cracker. It's kind of, yeah. it doesn't necessarily have as much respect, especially because lots of places use, um. Uh, fake crab, right? They use yeah, pollock uh, meat. It's it's like cod or something. It's crazy. They use like pollock meat, yeah. yeah. So it's just like cheap fish, and then but you can find places that use real crab. Of course, you're going to be paying more than that, but that's expected as well. But uh, yeah, it, we've definitely um, become more sophisticated, and I'd like to think that we've definitely broadened ourselves from the California roll that we've learned to also embrace. I went to a Japanese restaurant <laughs> the other day, and there was a sign on the window saying. No California roll. No I love spi- it. Where was it? It was in Los Angeles. It was West LA. So <laughs> no California roll, no spicy tuna. Don't ask. I love that. Because the, the, guy, the sushi chef was probably I've gone. I've had it with that. Let's do something more adventuresome, you know? Mm-hmm. I do think that's happening in Vancouver as well, too. I mean, it used to all be about, you know, rolls and sauces and all of this stuff and cream cheese and rolls and da-da-da. And those have oh, the Phil- place. Oh, the Philadelphia roll. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly, Philadelphia roll. Yeah, yeah. And those, those sushi rolls, they have their places. And, like, with all the kimchi on it and all these sauces, they have their places. And it's not that they taste bad, but it just takes away from what traditional Japanese... Um, sushi is about is about okay major and here's my question where do you go for japanese sushi yeah we'll go through the whole list japanese okay, okay let's say well other, de- other than tojo because that's a natural yeah. well it's interesting because at the same time while he did pioneer the fine dining japanese um food scene it's i mean it's been a long time since he's opened there's a lot of uh, you know, new chefs that have also opened or new chefs that have also opened Japanese restaurants. Yeah. I am a traditionalist. I do prefer uh, Itamai nigiri, which is classic fish and rice. Um, that's it. They sauce it for you and everything. I'm, I, I, can be te- I can tend to be a purist when it comes to sushi. And so I just want the simplest form, fish on rice. And did you know, actually... No Philadelphia say, roll for you. You don't have any cream You know, sauce. it has its place. If okay, I want to spend okay. those dollars or go there, then I'm going to do that. Okay. But then otherwise, I go traditional. Um, and a few places I'd like for that is uh, Sushi Hachi in Richmond. It's a really tiny Richmond's place. Richmond's a neighborhood in Vancouver. Absolutely. It's a suburb in Vancouver. And they open maybe three, four days a week for three hours a day and this is a husband and wife operation i sit at the bar and i do omakase there 
And that's a kind of really special spot that not many people know about if you're looking for sustainable. I, I literally just had sushi downstairs at the Fairmont Pacific Rim. So Takasan, he teaches uh, sushi classes, but he also does all sustainable seafood. Well, you know what's really cool about that yeah. place? It's open till one o'clock in the morning. Right. But the thing is, is he does a role that I have total respect for. And it's one of my favorite roles in the city. If I, if I am ready. going down the roll route is the sablefish role he does. Sablefish. Now we're in a now we're in a deli. We're Sablefish, in a, yeah. aka Black Cod, right? I mean, yeah. it's just a, a fancy name to get people back then to pay more for what was just right. Black Cod. Exactly. But um, his sablefish down there is it's it's buttery, it's delicious, it's flavorful, it's smoky, it's 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 one of my favorite rolls if I'm gonna have a roll in the city. But the cool thing is the place is open late. Mm-hmm. You don't find that with most sushi restaurants. Um, no, you don't. No, you don't. Uh, well, it depends. I guess in Vancouver, you don't really, unless you go the really affordable route. Yeah. Then you have some places that are open later. Um, there's also, what else do I really like? I like, there's also Masayoshi, which is, he used to work for Tojo-san. Yeah. And so he worked for him for over 10 years before opening his own restaurant. And he does only eight sushi seats at the bar, no California rolls, no spicy tuna rolls. You know, this is what you're going to do. You're going to do 17 pieces or tw 12 pieces. So he's like the soup Nazi. It. He's the soup Nazi. But he's too sweet to be a Nazi. He's like, he's so sweet. And then most of the time, I, I you know, there's a communication, like, uh, communication barrier for us, but most of the time it's just a lot of smiling and nodding. <laughs> That's like Takasan downstairs, a lot of smile and nodding, but he speaks English very well, so it's really sweet. He understands the word sablefish. Yeah, oh, totally. <laughs> okay, that's very cool. Hey, by the way, it's once again, it's called Follow Me Foodie? Yes. Follow Me Foodie or Foodies? Follow Me Foodie, D-I-E. Dot com. Dot com. Dot com. thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate that. There you go, keep that going. This is flight 372 on SWA. The flight attendants on board serving you today. Teresa in the middle, David in the back. My name is David and I'm here to tell you that. Shortly after takeoff, first things first, there's soft drinks and coffee to quench your thirst. But if you want another kind of drink, then just holler. Alcoholic beverages will be $4. If a monster energy drink is your plan, that'll be $3 and you get the whole can. I've been we coming to Vancouver for over 40 years and I'm always astounded. I'm a New York City boy, so anytime I see green, I'm a happy guy. And uh, the first thing you see when you get to Vancouver, you don't have to look far, is Stanley Park. And what an amazing, large city park it is. And that's just one of a number of green areas in the city that helps to define it. And joining me now, somebody knows a little bit about that, the, the board chairman of the Vancouver Park Board, uh, Michael Weeb. How are you, man? Good. Thanks for having me. I mean, you heard my introduction about Stanley Park. I mean, it's, 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 uh, it's pretty cool. And if you're from New York, uh, Stanley Park's actually bigger than Central Park, so we kind of like to hold that. Thank you for reminding me. <laughs> and, and by most city park standards, Central Park's pretty big. It is. But, I mean, it's more than just Stanley Park here. Yeah, we have over 240 parks, and the first thing our city council did uh, over 100 years ago was create an elected board. So our board's actually an elected board that's just here to make sure that we have more parks and our parks continue to stay positive. Well, actually, I, I, would, I would assume based on most cities, your, your, your platform is not just to have more parks, but not to have less. Yes. Well, and right now, I mean, like you said, we're growing as a city. And so we've got all this new opportunity on the waterfront and we're creating new 23 acre, 13 acre parks, just one after another. So as we move away but from you, some you, of the industrial And you have stuff, the land to do that? We do have the land to do it because we're moving away from some of the industrial businesses. We're creating clean jobs. We've got a lot of tech companies coming here that don't utilize the waterfront. So we're moving them inside and we're able to take advantage of that waterfront and build these beautiful parks and daylight new creeks. And we're doing a lot here for biodiversity. 
Do you have specific parks that are designated for specific activities? Yeah, and that's always the biggest thing is what do you, how much do you activate a park versus passive space? I mean, Stanley Park's got great trails and just places that you can just sit on a bench. And, and, and it always has. Yeah, but other parks that are more urban settings, sometimes it gets really complicated on how many things you need to put into it. We've got this many dog owners, this many people playing tennis, you have this many people that want to play pickleball. You have all these kind of activities that you can't fit in one space. How many dogs want to play pickleball? Not very many. Okay, good. I'm just double check. <laughs> but the thing is, you mentioned dogs. That's a big deal. Yeah, and, and you and you got to create that space. Yeah, and we're creating a whole new dog strategy because of the amount of dogs. We have hundreds of thousands of dogs now in the city of Vancouver. And so our dog versus space has become a big issue and one that normally people don't deal with. But our board has taken it on head on and we're dealing with a big issue this year. Have you gotten to the par- point where you've had to limit the number of dogs per park? Not yet, but we were looking at what type of parks work and how we can create more space and small space. And um, dogs need a place to run, but it's not always in our parks you can't just have dogs running around everywhere so we're working to do a good balance where dogs can have their space and we're even doing our outdoor agility like we're looking at different options outdoor play parks spray parks for dogs i mean dogs need to have a good time as well and so we're trying to find that balance. is there a park in vancouver where dogs can just take off and run yeah we've got some good outdoor ones that have good space we have some beaches that some of our nicest beaches in vancouver are actually dog beaches so extension and the one by maritime museum if anyone gets a chance they are the two most beautiful beaches for watching the sunset and they're also dog friendly beaches no they're the two most beautiful beaches for watching dogs watch the sunset yes well and for people that want to watch dogs watch the sunset come on down to these two beaches because they're stunning and you have to keep on a leash no, not those beaches. Really? Those are dog off-leash beaches that lead to off-leash trails. And so we have some fantastic areas in Vancouver where we can leave your office and be at a secluded beach in five minutes. And they look very natural. And so it's very different than other cities that are really kind of designed and kind of everything's got their own contour, right? So this is a little bit more. And then how do you build in the green technology? So green technology is kind of what we can do to advance it, taxation and different ways that we can kind of bring people in. It's also, we're lucky with our background. So we attract a lot of people to Vancouver just because, like you said, today's a gorgeous day and we're sitting Right now, just on the show, we've attracted a lot of dogs to Vancouver. <laughs> I want you to know that. Yeah. yeah, and they should because we're a dog-friendly city. Whistler's a dog-friendly city. I mean, we're looking at some of the beautiful trails we have that are off-leash that you can get out in 10 minutes and be up in the hills. Wow. But when we talk about green technology, what, I mean, in terms of being able to lessen the carbon footprint, in terms of lessen the actual energy use, I mean, I see buildings right around this hotel that, that have grass roofs. Yeah, the one that's we're right across from our yeah. new convention center has one of the largest grass roofs, and it's also utilizing the water. So it pumps some of its heat into the water, and it cools it to come back into the building. So we're utilizing not only the ocean, but we're using the air and everything else to create these green buildings. And we're trying to be the greenest city. And so that's pushing technology and it's pushing ideas forward. And it's making the politicians in Vancouver make sure that when they do make a decision, they put that green lens in. Because they can lose their seat if they don't. Because this is a city that takes greenery as a key component to what makes their life happy. But you don't take it overly seriously. I mean, that's the point where everything has to be green. No, and that's where there's a good range. I mean, right, people are going to have to drive. We're looking at different options. But you have to come with a balance where having access to greenery, and that's been a big one, is we want to have every single person who lives in Vancouver to be within a five-minute walk of a park. So it might not be a big park, right? We don't need large green spaces in every neighborhood. But you but need the spaces. We need the spaces, and you need to be able to get to a green space because it's really good for your health. Yeah, I want to come back to a park where the dogs drive to the park. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no? Okay. No. <laughs> we draw the line. Well, and that's the thing is that people, some of our parents right now, we have dog parks that you have to drive to. And so we need to create more smaller parks where people can take their dog walk. 
The key is the, the key is to walk. The key is to walk. We have clearance, Clarence. Roger, Roger. What's our vector, Victor? Now I radio clearance over. That's Clarence over. Over. Roger. Huh? You heard me speak earlier in the show. What I love so much about Vancouver, among so many other things, is the great diversity in food, uh, all the great ethnic choices, and I'm talking about seriously great choices. And my next guest uh, exemplifies that. Born in India, he's worked in Dubai, he's worked in Singapore, and now he's making his home right here in Vancouver. He's from New Delhi. Uh, Karan Suri, how are you, sir? Thank you. The executive chef right here at the hotel. I mean, when you think about what you can bring to the party here, because you have so much opportunity for sourcing stuff, right? You have no difficulty getting seafood at this place. Absolutely. Um, we are very enamored by the seafood and everything fresh that's available on the West Coast. So. I'll, I'll tell you what's really cool about this hotel, and I just found this out. You have a sushi bar in the lobby. Yes. It's open till 1 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. How cool is that? And they got the award for being the, the most responsible in terms of their fish choices, in terms of overfishing. Yes. So we, uh, within Fairmont, work with uh, OceanWise, which is the sustainable fishing option or uh, the group that basically governs that. And most of our hotels are 100% ocean-wise, which means we support sustainable seafood and we support the choices that people make by eating local and wild and sustainable food. And you've got a new restaurant that just opened up in this hotel, right? The Botanist. Yeah, just, I mean, just like a day ago. Yes. Just about. Is there such a thing as Vancouver cuisine? Well, Vancouver cuisine exists. Um, Pacific Northwest is what uh, a lot of people call it as. Um, but what's so great about Vancouver as a food scene is the diversity is 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 what you can get here, and that what that's what really makes uh, the overall cuisine so exciting, because you can get everything. So basically, I can get great Pacific oysters in the in the Northwest and non bread and non bread, <laughs> garlic non bread, garlic non bread. Now we're talking. Yeah. What would you say? Because you've been here about three years now. So what would you say is your signature dish, if if you have one? Well, it's, uh, it's very hard to pick up a signature dish, but of course I love working with the local seafood um, here in uh, BC. Spot prawns is something that does come straight to my head. It's um, only available for a certain period of time and it's starting very soon. And, um, and I love playing around with flavors. Uh, I've also worked in Africa, so some couple of North African flavors with spot prawns is my current go-to dish. Okay, when you say a couple of North African flavors, such as? Such as using sharmula, using dukkha, uh, using, Explain that. So shirmula is basically a spice base that you would make, make with paprika, cumin, tomatoes, lemon juice, parsley, olive oil. And then dukkha is basically a spiced nut mix where uh, we use some local hazelnuts, some cumin, some coriander. So just basically amping up a lot of flavors in, in a few bites and, uh, and taking something from here, transporting it to North Africa, and then bringing it back. Basically, you sound like a chemist. <laughs> I mean, when you think about it. Well, most chefs are. I mean, they're more than chemists. They're artists. They're, uh, they're crazy soldiers. They are like so many things that uh, a lot of people do not know about. But yes, um, we just lo- love to experiment with flavors and textures and tastes and um, um, how the dish looks. Now, I ask this of every chef, so bear with me. But is there a dish that you put on the menu here that you thought everybody is going to love this dish and it completely tanked? And... Conversely, is there a dish you think, I'll put it on the menu, but who's ever going to want this? And everybody does. Well, there's always that choice, that hard choice that chefs have to make. Um, I sometimes joke with my team and I tell them that there are two types of dishes, one that chefs like and one that people like. And um, uh, one of the very good examples that I can think of recently is that uh, we basically dehydrated beef tendons and puffed them into 
crisps that were served with a spicy togarashi aioli. And everybody in the kitchen went like, wow, this is so amazing. This is the new chicharron. This is the new puff. This is the new nuts. Probably not ordered. We've probably had like very few guests order that. Is it still on the menu? Uh, it is on the menu. Barely. Yes. We're going to intend to keep Bare- it. Oh, you're going to keep it? Yes. Okay. Because the- whoever has had it has said that, wow, they, wow. Never, they never thought. So, and, and one of the examples of dishes that I think most of my fellow chefs would agree with me is a Caesar salad. You know, that's something pretty boring. Something yeah. that something that people would go like, oh, it's a Caesar salad. But then you have no okay. idea. What, um, ma- what makes your Caesar salad so special? Well, the first thing is that we mix, our, we mix a little bit of kale in our Caesar salad. We only use white anchovies. We use a really nice young parmesan cheese from Reggiano, which has got a nice, uh, soft, rich flavor. Uh, but at the end, it's a Caesar salad. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Alaska Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants. Please look at one now. If you're coming up to Vancouver or anywhere else in, uh, in British Columbia, it is a rite of passage. It is a ritual. I know very few cruise ship passengers who do not take up the opportunity to do this. Most of my friends have done it at least once. I've done it too. You go over to Victoria to another hotel that used to be one of the old uh, uh, Canadian Rail uh, hotels called the Empress, now part of the Fairmont chain, and you go there for high tea. And it's quite the ritual. And uh, and if you haven't done it, you have to do it at least once. I mean, people just have to do it. And joining me now, the general manager from the Empress uh, in Dubai. How are you? Hi, Peter. And, by the way, the first female general manager of the hotel ever since it opened in 1908. That's right. So it's a hotel that's 109 years old, if I do my math correct. That's right. This year, January. Amazing. So, but explain Victoria. Because we're in, Van- we're in Vancouver. It's a beautiful little island, uh, about a 35-minute Harbor Air or Helijet flight over, over that, the ferry. A, yeah, you got <laughs> on a good day like today. You got to take the helicopter. It's stunning, yeah. absolutely stunning. So, um, Vancouver Island, uh, beautiful, beautiful area. Victoria is. Um, and by the way, let me explain something about Vancouver Island. You don't just do the high tea. There's a pod of whales, unbelievable pod of, of orcas that a good friend of mine knows about, and now you know about it, and you can go out there and do great whale watching, and, and the whales are always there. They are always there. And, and, uh, and they know each whale by name. They, they've done sonar stuff. And then from there, do that in the morning, and then go over to the Empress for the, for the high tea. Come for tea. We've got, well, we've got uh, beautiful afternoon tea at the Empress, 21 loose-leaf teas, uh, Pastries, clotted cream, everything made by our. Oh, you, you went for the you went for the big clotted cream. Oh, it's uh, it's it's addictive. I have I hate to say it. <laughs> well, this is radio, but the, the, the truth be told, you weigh two pounds. We hate you. Okay. <laughs> well, I have to. You have to be wise when you work at the Empress, and you're you have all of these wonderful options around you, day in and day out. What's but what's special about Victoria? Because people don't realize, and it's, and it's so accessible. Oh, well, it really, it's, it's beautiful. It's nature. It's rugged. Um, it's island living at its most civilized, if, if you can imagine. You've got, um, you can go hiking, you can go surfing, you can go whale watching, you can come for afternoon tea. Did you mention afternoon tea again? I did. Stop it. <laughs> okay, what about Q Bar, one of the hottest bars in town? So we've got Pacific um, North, uh, sort of Pacific Northwest restaurants. Uh, the culinary and food scene in Victoria is tremendous. 
no one thinks about Victoria when you think about wineries. We have beautiful wineries. Yeah, that's it. People don't know. Within, within four hours of where we are right now, right, we're in, in Vancouver. I mean, you've got Canadian wineries. We have Canadian wineries and world-class wines. I mean, it's a... This part of the world is um, it's stunning. There's so much to see and do, and it's, um, yeah, it's just one of my favorite places. And people don't realize, but I want to put this in some historical perspective, most Americans discovered Vancouver and Victoria by accident, thanks to a, a, a very arcane federal law called the Jones Act. And the Jones Act said that no fl- ship, no cruise ship, or any ship whatsoever flagged in a foreign country could sail between two U.S. ports without stopping in a foreign port first. So that's why all the Alaska cruises, or most of them, start in Vancouver, because you can't start in Seattle or San Francisco and go straight to Alaska because it violates the Jones Act. So people are either going to discover Vancouver and Victoria on the way up or on the way back. And that's how everybody says, hey, let's go over to the Empress and have, let me hear it again, high tea. (laughs) But that's true. It is true, and it, it, it really is a bucket list thing to do. I, we hear so much about, um, about afternoon tea at the Empress. Um, we've actually just developed a beautiful Empress cake on the inspiration of the Saha Tort in Vienna. Oh, boy. We sent our pastry chef to France. If the scones weren't enough, you have a cake now. We have a cake. What's in the cake? Um, it's a Casey's cake. It's our own chocolate. Our pastry chef went you ma- to France. You, you make your own chocolate? We make our own chocolate. We have our own chocolate profile based on um, the Pacific Northwest. So he was flown over to France. He worked with a wonderful um, wonderful company there and, and established our very own chocolate for the Empress. So when you're having high tea, if it's not enough for all the scones and the pastries and the sandwiches and the high tea, you can then really like gild the lily with... The Empress Tort. It's fabulous. <laughs> and you sell a lot of them to go, don't you? We do. Beautiful cake boxes. Um, it's, all, it's, it's, just, it's just like Vienna. It's all in the box. It's all in the Every box. Every time I go to Vienna, I'm an idiot. I, every time I go to Vienna, I, I, even at the airport, I say, oh, I better get one. And then I bring it back, and it sits in my refrigerator. I look at it, and I say, I can't eat that. It's just too heavy. It's rich. It's, yeah, it, yeah, it is rich, isn't it? Well, I think our crowning glory on our cake is a, the beaut- a beautiful uh, crown that uh, Queen, um, um, Queen Elizabeth wore. So there's a beautiful crown right on top. Made out of? Chocolate. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> but what about the hotel itself? Because it's one of the traditional grand dames. It really is, but fully restored. We're just coming off of a 60 million plus uh, restoration. It, it's not a renovation, it's a transformation. We've done a, um, an incredible, incredible job. Brand new lobby, health club, restaurant. Um, and is it the true that the Empress Tort is in every locker in the health club? <laughs> <laughs> well, it could be. That's a, probably, that's a very good idea, Peter. That's, that's good inspiration. Okay. <laughs> You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you 
It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money, and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.